Hey guys, Matthew Bearden with Ark of Hope Baptist. Glad to have you back. We're going to be continuing tonight of our typology in the Old Testament, um, talking about the tabernacle and the temple, and talking about how it relates to Jesus and some other things along with that. Um, all that being said, I'm going to open us up in a quick word of prayer, and then we can jump right into the lesson, okay? So let's bow our heads. Father, we come to you now. I just ask that you would be with us this evening, that your word would be edified. And Lord, we just thank you for this evening. I thank you for this fellowship that we all have. And I thank you for this family that we have in Christ. Lord, I'm, uh, me and my wife are so grateful to be here. And I just thank you for everyone that's here tonight. Lord, uh, I just ask you to be of everyone and their, their needs, the hurts, and, and the, all the unspoken prayer requests. Lord, and please be with Miss Tina. Please be with Wallene as she is delivering a child and lord we just thank you for all that you do and we ask all this tonight in your son's holy name amen, amen. so tonight i'm just going to give a quick gist of what we were talking about on sunday it won't take long it's just a uh just a quick uh recap of things so we're talking about how certain things in the tabernacle represented jesus um and things that were to come at that time so here's the gist of it, is you have the Ark of the Covenant representing God's holiness, all right, that Jesus actually fulfilled the law. The manna represents him giving his life or offering himself unto death, and Aaron's rod that budded uh, to represent his life and resurrection and God's affirmation that he is the one that is to save us. So we're going to now jump to the Ark of the Covenant and what sits on top of it. So this is something called the mercy seat, all right? It is not made of wood and gold like the rest of the ark is. It is instead made of solid gold. It had these two cherubim, all right? And the I am in Hebrew is like the S in English, English so this is plural. There are these two angelic-like beings with their wings stretched out forward, in some sense covering that area in the middle of the, uh, the ark. But the middle of the mercy seat is to stay completely empty. Um, and this is very important. If you were a pagan, for instance, you would put your idol directly in the middle of, of this. This is where you'd want it to be. But this is supposed to be completely empty. Um, and you can't depict God properly. Um, God makes it clear, do not put anything there. Don't make an image to represent me. He is simply not of this creation. There's nothing to be made that won't just be an offense unto him to represent him in that sense on the ark. Um, I'm going to pass around this little sheet here of the mercy seat. Don't laugh at the font. <laughs> it's the best one I could find on Google at the time. But essentially there's nothing there. And these cherubim, their wings, they cover the, the middle of the mercy seat. Um there is an open space, some would say, to, just to represent God's presence. Jesus, of course, the center of all, the center of it all, says in uh, John fourteen nine, he says this, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, and God is with us. It's very interesting. The mercy seat, why is it called that? Its main function, it seems, is that the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would offer one thing and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The only thing that would touch the mercy seat, it was blood, and it was blood from a bull. So I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14. 
want you to hear this. Leviticus 16, 14. It says this, he shall take some of the blood, speaking of the high priest, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat, on the east side. We're going to come back to that. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle it, some of the blood with his finger, seven times. All right, and as we know, this number seven is the number of completion. And this will all come back. We're going to talk more about that east side here in just a moment. But this was, this was its main function. It was to have the blood sprinkled upon it. And this was their forgiveness of sins. This was on the Day of Atonement. Um, why sprinkled on the east side? Well, in the temple, it's very interesting to, to see this. In the temple, we see that uh, east of the temple in Jerusalem, <clears throat> east of the temple in Jerusalem in general is uh, the Mount of Olives. And directly below the Mount of Olives is a small valley that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane, all right, which translates to the Olive Press. Now, I'm going to segue momentarily. He, the book of Hebrews corresponds with a lot of the dealings of the tabernacle and the temple and as it relates to Christ. So I want us to read Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at uh, verse 6. We're going to read a couple of verses here. Hebrews 9, we'll start at verse 6. We'll go to 14. says this, Now when these things had been thus uh, prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, sprinkling and the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. And those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. All right, and I read a, a verse longer there, but it's still good stuff to read. So we see there is a, a unique significance here as this is relating to the tabernacle, relating to the temple, relating to the sacrifice that Christ is this ultimate sacrifice that is to be made. All right, and so we see that in Hebrews 9, 6, 14. Simply amazing. If you want to read more on exactly how a priest would go through this process, um, I recommend maybe for homework reading like uh, Leviticus chapter 4 verses like 1 and 2 and such or 1 through 12. 
Now, I want to try and get us to understand the full picture. We talked last week on, on how items in the ark represented Jesus. Well, they represent something else as well. While they represent a type of Christ, that also re- there's something else that it, it tends to represent. So there were the Ten Commandments, all right, that were in the ark, the two stone tablets, a golden pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. Each represent a different sin of mankind. The covenant stones represent man's disobedience over God's commandments, the manna, man's rejection on God's provision, and Aaron's rod, man's rejection and questioning on God's appointed leadership. All right. So on the day of atonement, when the Aaronic high priest sprinkled blood seven times onto the east side of the mercy seat, the sins of the Israelites were literally and figuratively being covered painting a picture of how great Christ's sacrifice truly is. When we keep in mind the context of Hebrews chapter 9 there. We Gentiles as well as the Jews have disobeyed the commandments of God. We have rejected God's provision. And we have questioned or outright rejected God's authority in his leadership. If you're having trouble with that and don't believe that, I would like to just point to uh, Hebrews 9, 23 through 26. This is talking about Jesus' sacrifice. Uh, I'd like to read it to you now. Therefore, therefore it was necessary that the copies of of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is a sacrifice once for all. This isn't something that they have to do every year, forever and ever. This isn't a once a year day of atonement. This is something greater than that. He appears and he sacrifices in a greater sense, covering our sins in the same sense that the sins were covered in the tabernacle. So let's now jump inside of the holy place. All right, there was the table of the showbread. Pass that around. I need to start getting some fancy slides. But we're going to go to the table of the showbread, and these are all just basic images here. It's the table of the showbread. That one's gone. That's all right. So, <clears throat> the table of the showbread is 36, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. This was all measured in cubits. All right, it had 12 loaves of bread on it, which seemed to represent the 12 ty- tribes of Israel. It had wine on it, bread and wine to be specific. And bread and wine is before God in the tabernacle. All right, when is the last time we've seen bread and wine mentioned? The Last Supper. The Last Supper. I can also think of Melchizedek as well. Mm. All right, so... We think of Melchizedek, he offers blood, uh, uh, bread and wine. 
Then we think of Jesus, who is greater than Melchizedek, all right? And he offers blood, uh, the, I keep wanting to say blood, bread and wine as a uh, as a representative of uh, his sacrifice. So we see this mentioned. I think it's interesting. This is what we're seeing in the holy place. We're seeing these 12 loaves of bread. We're seeing that represent the 12 tribes of Israel, perhaps. We're also seeing the bread and wine, which is akin to what we see going on uh, at the Last Supper. All right. Um, another thing offered in the holy place all right, on this table would be the frankincense. And what is something that was offered to Jesus at his birth? Frankincense. Frankincense. All right. Uh, frankincense, it's the probably the, the closest connection to the table of the showbread I can make is uh, in general, just as the table of showbread in general is communion. That's the one that seems to just logically come when you think about it, is just that communion. Um, you think that's why they, why they brought it? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I think, I'm getting, it also shows how unified the 12 tribes were supposed to be, really, if you think right. about it. You know, all at the same table. All of the the bread and the wine, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that seems to be at least my, you know, understanding of it. Um, but like I said, closest connection I can have is communion. Uh, the loaves do confuse me slightly because I don't know if it's an offering from Israel or if it's an offering to Israel. That's one thing I I don't fully know as far as the loaves. If it's an offering from them or it's supposed to be to them, in that sense. But moving on the the lampstand, all right. I'm gonna pass around. This is this is very interesting. I I uh, when studying for this, I found this. So this I'm gonna pass it around. This is in Rome, called the Ark of Titus. Okay. All right. And it has on it. I want you to pay close attention. What are they carrying in that picture? Yeah, they're carrying the menorah. They're carrying a, a big golden lampstand, as we see. All right? And uh, we're going to come to that here in just a moment. So that picture that you're seeing there, the, the Ark of Titus, it was built 12 years. It was built 12 years after Jerusalem was ransacked um, by, Titus's, uh, by Titus. All right? And this was in 80 A.D. So this is not too long after the time of Christ. So Titus ransacks Jerusalem. He takes it, and he it's it's depicting that how he ransacked, and it looks like he went into the temple. Well, and, the, the temple was already destroyed by AD. Yeah, so, but he was going in. They, they kept a lot of the furniture that was left over, okay. is my understanding. And this is what's important with it. It's also to show his strength over Israel. Titus's brother is the one that... Uh, had this constructed hmm. as a as a uh, commemorative. a commemorative of his his older brother or uh, for what he did in Jerusalem, and this is probably the closest depiction we have of what and the old lampstand would have looked like, hmm. all right? Because there isn't a lot of de depictions of it. The closest one we usually think of is the menorah that you see for Hanukkah, yeah. but that's that's actually a different menorah. Yeah, right. um, this one, you know, the one for Hanukkah has one that sits higher than the rest. Whereas this one, it's all pretty much even across the board. Yeah, this one has seven. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, even, and we'll get to this later on, uh, the Temple Institute 
has <laughs> has used the Ark of Titus as a as a helper yeah, 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 yeah. to help guide them as far as what to have for the temple when it's built when again. The, it's just yeah. it, it, kind of interesting to me to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, but anyway, it's built 12 years after Jerusalem was ransacked. Let's see here. Um, we don't know if it's completely accurate, but considering how far back in time this goes, I mean, it's probably the closest we're going to get. Um, and the, like I said, the Temple Institute preparing for the new temple. This is their rendering. I'm going to show you the the rendering they have for what they are. This is uh, what they're planning for. Now, one thing you'll notice about the lampstand is it, it's supposed to kind of look organic in some sense. Um, and we'll get to that in just a minute. It has almond blossoms. Okay. That are depicted within the the gold. All right, and this is a solid gold, which is interesting to me. Um, it's supposed to look organic. It has the almond blossoms. Um, and another thing that kind of separates it from the one uh, for Hanukkah is the Hanukkah one was supposed to really represent the cleansing of the temple. This one is a little different. Um, but it's similar. And also, again, coming back to the number seven, number seven being the number of completion. One question I had while studying this is why almonds? Um, That's what Aaron's rod was. Yeah, that's what bloomed on his. Yeah. And one thing I found, and again, I don't know, this comes back to what I said last Sunday. I don't know uh, how deep this goes. This is conjecture. This is just my thoughts, not trying to come up with new theology. But one thing I found that was fascinating is almond trees bloom before any other tree does in the winter. Really? Hmm. They have no leaves. They have no leaves. They bloom before any other trees do. Um, it begins putting out blossoms in the dead of winter um, in January. Now, there is a connection in Scripture with this. Jeremiah uh, chapter 1, verse 11, speaks about how he saw God was basically talking to him. Right. And he said, what do we you see? see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see the blossom. I see the blossoms of almond. Right. You know? And again, that's just a small reference, but it just makes me think, I'm like, what is, is there really a, a deeper significance yeah, 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 yeah. that we're not seeing there, you know? Huh. You know? Yeah, it, I didn't make that connection, but now, oh yeah. Yeah, he's like, yeah. what are you seeing? And you know, we're thinking about the desolation that's going on in Jeremiah's time. That's right. What are you seeing is like this hope, perhaps, is the almond tree is blossoming in the dead of winter. Right. You know, and I think about Aaron's rod. It budded with almond blossoms. That's right. Yeah. And when there was no hope, it was left in a dark place, you know, yeah. and it blooms something that's dead that blooms. And of course we talked about on Sunday that representing Christ. I mean, the most basic sense again, that, that is conjecture, but I think it's a fascinating point. Nonetheless. Um, Did you know that peaches and almonds are related? No, I didn't. That's awesome. <laughs> Cause we're in Georgia. Um, that's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can see that uh, uh, again if you want to like take a note of that Jeremiah chapter one verses verse eleven um, says he sees an almond tree and it's budding. Same thing with Aaron's rod; it's just fascinating. Um, and that's in the dead of winter. Um, it, it, it just kind of think if you know God's like I'm going to bring forth life <laughs> where there is death. Um, and and this is something else that's that's interesting. The word in Hebrew for almond literally translates to to watch or to wake that's interesting and again I can't help but just think there's something deeper here that 
maybe we won't know till the other side of heaven, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, but but to just that being the very definition of almond to them to watch, yeah. it's not yeah. watch, it's to watch, right? And to wake, it's it's interesting to me. Um, That's, yeah. So possibly connection. I'm not going to die on that hill, but. Um, also, this is something interesting to know about the lampstand. The lampstand was the only light of the tabernacle. Um, possibly, the, you could say that the, the glory of God would, could have been another light source. Um, I'm not saying that it wasn't. Yeah. But as far as just man-made light, this was the only man-made light that they had inside the tabernacle. Um, so, But the lampstand was not allowed to go out ever. It was not allowed. It always had to have the oil from olives, hmm. specifically olives. All right. And we'll, this will come full circle, I promise. Um, constantly producing light through the oil of olives. Um, could I possibly get someone to read John 8, 12? Yeah. And sir, I'm note heavy tonight. That's why you see me. I'm just like having to be here. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Yeah, so we see Jesus. He's clearly saying that he's the light of the world. Um, and I also think of just the, the lampstand. It's the only light of the tabernacle. All right, and what is the tabernacle if not the place where God is? Right. Um, so Jesus is saying he's the light of the world. Um, and the <clears throat> lampstand, all right, um, was the light of the tabernacle, Christ being the light of the world. The gold, this is interesting, the gold had to be of hammered work. It couldn't just be, uh, it had to be hammered into uh, its position, into its shape. And it's very interesting. It specifically says that it has to be hammered. Um, if we want to read, uh, can I possibly get someone to read Numbers 8, 4? Numbers 8, 4. Is speaking, it should be speaking about the hammered work of the lampstand. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers, it was hammered work. According to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. Which is interesting because when it speaks about the mercy seat, it doesn't say, oh, it, it says it's solid gold, but it doesn't say it's hammered. Yeah. All right? Yeah, and yeah, we yeah, see yeah. the gold and the wood from the acacia wood inlay and that gold's not hammered either but when it comes to the lampstand it says oh this is hammered gold um and there's something to that this is also repeated in exodus 25 31 but let's uh let's read isaiah we're gonna read isaiah We're going to be in Isaiah 53. And as we know, the book of Isaiah speaks a lot of Christ. But Isaiah 53, 5 <clears throat> says here, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Another thing that we see with the hammered work being in the golden lampstand is that same word could be translated as the bruised, to hammer, to to uh, just pound it, if you will. ESV says crushed. Yeah. Crushed, yeah. And so 
it just to me it, it seems to indicate Jesus was beaten he was crushed he was bruised um, I'm going to read Exodus 27 20 says this you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you only the pure beaten olive oil alright so he says here in Exodus 27 20 you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light of the lampstand, for the light of the lamp may regularly be set up to burn. All right. Now he could have just said, "Have the you know have the olives, have them pressed." It doesn't you know, but it doesn't say that. It says, "I command you to have the pure beaten olive oil." And this comes back into play with everything with the Mount of Olives. He could have just said olives. Um, we read in the New Testament, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane which literally means the garden of the olive press. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's an olive grove that he is in. All right. And in this garden, you know, we see that he is sweating great drops of blood. We see that he is very stressed out. He's bearing this incredible burden of what's about to happen and what is happening. All right. His blood being spilt for us on the cross. Some would say this is akin to an olive being pressed. Huh. Okay, yeah. and this is just interesting. We see he's, uh, and the the lampstand had to be from pressed olives. They had to be beaten, pure beaten olive oil. We see Isaiah indicating that he was beaten and crushed for our iniquities. Mm-hmm. We see here in the he's at the Garden of Gethsemane. We see that the the blood on the Ark of the Covenant was sprinkled on the east side. Well, what's on the east side of the temp of the of the Temple of Jerusalem? It's the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, interesting. Yeah, and yeah. I I. It's just, it's all pointing to this olive press. Yeah. And how Jesus is the light of the world, the lampstand being the light of the tabernacle. Uh, to me, it just seems to be indicating something greater there. Um, but this lampstand, it was to be regularly set. So in the garden, we see Jesus, he's, he, someone say he's being pressed. He's, he's got yeah. this incredible stress, sweating great drops of blood, uh, and thinking about what's happening and what is to come, we'll probably never know spiritually what was really going on. And that right. is how horrific that would, that, I mean, to yeah. know the, the weight of the world quite yes, literally, literally, literally yeah. is on your shoulders. I mean, that's something that, uh, I, I certainly don't want to feel. Mm. Um, but his blood was spilt for us. And like I said, someone said this is akin to an olive being pressed. So, uh, and then we see that the oil is used for light. Some would say that the his oil, his blood, was used for the light of the world. Mm. You know? Um, there is also incense at the altar. Um, it's literally called the altar of incense. I'll pass it. It's the smallest one. I don't know why. They all printed really big except this one. But it's really cute in there. It is cute. Yeah, but it's the altar of incense. Um, and and people, a lot of people dismiss the altar of incense. But it was quite literally probably the only thing that permeated the veil. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, right, you think yeah. about it, I mean, you're not going to have much light in there. Right. You're not going to have the, the bread with you. You're not going to have the wine with you, but you might still be smelling yeah, that it. incense. Yeah. It's kind of weird, too, like all of those offerings in Leviticus, like the flour, they had them add the incense to it. Right. Well, um, what does incense represent in Scripture? It represents prayer. Yes, yeah. It represents prayer. So quite literally, you could say in a figurative sense, the only thing that permeates that veil 
his prayer. And we can get into that uh, here a little bit. But, um, you know, there's the altar of incense. It's in front of the veil. It is directly in front of the veil. Um, and and something interesting to know about the, the veil, which we'll get into in a second, it wasn't something that you slid. It wasn't something that you went around like a, you know, a thick curtain like you would see at a play that you would go out through the side entrance. Right. You would have to crawl underneath. Oh, really? To okay. get to it. All right. Um, to get underneath the veil. What you're saying about the, the incense and the prayers, isn't it? I'm trying to find it. The book of Revelation talks about Yeah, it. Revelation 8 4. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're welcome to read it if you want. To. <laughs> I'm just, I got to get there first. But yeah, that's. Yeah, um, yeah Revelation 8 4. Uh, Jill, would you read Psalm 141 2? Eight, four. Baby can't read. She's got baby laugh. Yeah. That's understandable. Why would you got to ask? Baby toes and baby fingers. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and eight four, um, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hands. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it on the earth. Uh, I think it was who's who's that guy? Um, Francis Chan. One time I listened to him talking about, you know, you, if you think about that, all of our prayers are going up yeah. into this room in heaven. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like the incense. Like, it's like a, uh, I forget how he put it, but it, it's like we have this direct relationship. There's something there that we don't realize. Yeah. You know? I mean, it really is. And think about being the high priest. You're going in, you're, you're kind of in the safe area, you yeah, know, yeah, in the yeah. holy place. And then, you know, you go into the Holy of Holies. The only thing that you really, you know, that your senses can pick up on from what's on the outside yeah. is the incense. Yeah. You know, I mean, just think mm. if you try to think about it from like a first person perspective. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, that's going to be weird to think like, oh, this, this is a shared thing in between these rooms. Yeah. Um, like God is here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, they would uh, crawl underneath the thing. Yes, that's what I've always humbling. read. With a rope around their ankle in case they got struck dead. Yes, that's what I've always. I'm not trying to die on that hill. Yeah. That's just what I've always, you know. I thought I just always assumed that they walked through. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. It's like four inches thick, so it'd be kind of hard to lift it up. I, but like Matt said, I just kind of assumed it was like four inches like thick. Like right? in a in a theater or something you just yeah. go around the side well, kind of or that there there were like two panels so there's one in the middle yeah. you could just kind of yeah but I think well, it would, that's really really but if you're on the outside of the temple and like you don't want to be like kind of like oh looking in it you know yeah and then yeah it was actually thicker than that now, this is most people say it's 18 inches, inches. Yeah, it's 18 to 24 inches yeah some says 4 some says 5 um, Jewish tradition, they said two curtains that were four inches, or they were nine centimeters each. And it was probably heavy. Yeah. <laughs> what was it made out of? I don't know. If that was a thick. Is it wool? Probably wool. Some sort of thick linen yeah. of some kind. But every source I was reading Josephus about. Josephus says the veil was four inches thick and was renewed every year, and that horses tied to each side could not pull it apart. It barred all but the high priest from the presence of God, and when it was torn in two at the death of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, access to God was made available to all who came through him. 
Well, think about it. Yeah. You wouldn't want, if it was torn in two, it wouldn't make sense that it would be a slit in the middle for you yeah, just to pass through. Yeah, that's what I was just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Josephus described it as being torn in two. Yeah. So they still had the veil after. Yeah. Because Josephus was right after that, right? Yeah. Well, he, Josephus was at the time of Christ, I thought. Yes, he was right? yeah, so contemporary. That was, it was like not first person or anything, but he was writing about it, and it's like, oh, they said that the veil was torn in two. Um, and as you just said, there's no reason for it to be torn if they just slip through. It's, yeah, there's no, I mean, right? yeah. I, I just like, didn't think yeah, that through. Yeah, yeah. Well, this one says, this is from The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which is by Alfred Edersheim. Okay. He says, the veil before the most holy place, the veils, plural, were 40 cubits or 60 feet long and 20 cubits or 30 feet wide of the thickness of the palm of the hand and wrought in 72 squares which were joined together. And these veils were so heavy that in the exaggerated language of the time, giving the 300 priests to manipulate each. If the veil was at all such as is described in the Talmud, it could not have been rent in twain by a mere earthquake or the fall of the lintel although its composition in squares fastened together might explain how the rent might be described in the gospel. Mm. Mm. That is fascinating. Um, but I'm not saying it's impossible for them to have like gone through the side. I, sure, yeah, yeah. I've always just been told. If it was 60 feet wide, that's pretty under. big yeah. to go around. Yeah. Exactly. A lot. Um, it was I mean, I like that that uh, picture better it's a very humbling experience you're literally crawling on your belly yeah. before yeah. the lord before you yeah. present yourself right yeah it's like how you get into a blanket fort you know so, yeah yeah it was a little bit different than a blanket fort. <laughs> but I, I don't know if there's any verses on how they actually <laughs> went into yeah. it but i like that picture it's a yeah. very yeah um jill do you still have psalms is it 141 Yes, it is. Yeah. Let my prayer be continued as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Again, prayer being akin to incense here. And, and yeah. pro- possibly, I mean, the psalmist is probably thinking about the tabernacle. He's probably thinking about the temple. Absolutely. He's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, what would be on your mind as a, a Jewish man? Yeah. You know, that that's something that would be on your mind. Absolutely. You know? Um so it's just interesting to to me to see that prayer is that that thing that permeates. That, and think about how thick that veil is, mm-hmm. and that's the the only thing that could permeate. Mm. It's fascinating to me. Um, we also we pray through Christ. All right, He is how we come to the Father. All right, that's how we get to Him. Right. Right. Uh, what does First Thessalonians five fifteen always tell us to do? Literally says always pray. Yep. Always pray. Yeah, we're to pray always. Um, just like the altar burned always, okay, that's what we're to do. The lampstand's fascinating, and the, the Ark of Titus there, I just think is really cool to see, you know, how that kind of correlates. Um, uh, but anyway, so now I don't have much left, but the veil, all right, obviously it's a beautiful picture. We all, that's one thing I think church has been really good about in the in modern culture is, teaching pretty good on the veil and how it's ripped in two and uh, what that symbolizes for us. Um, But 
you know, it's it's like when I think of the tabernacle, I think of it's almost like this small picture of heaven. Yeah. It's just a small exactly right. Yeah. yeah, it's just a small picture of what heaven is mm. like, you know. Um, and I also think it's interesting, like we talked about on Sunday, the tabernacle was directly center of between all the tribes, you know, all 12 tribes. Mm. And I, they built their settlements wherever they went mm. around the tabernacle. Um, of course, the veil symbolizing the thing that kept us from God, but that Jesus is the one that ripped that in twain once he died on the cross. Imagine being that priest that came in the next day. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, you probably think, I'm about to die. Yeah. I'm about to die. You can see the Holy of Holies yeah. and nothing happens. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. And you're yeah. thinking, who could have ripped this? Yes. Yeah. And what happened? And I'm looking at the Ark of the Covenant and oh, I'm still alive. Yeah. You know, that's, that had to be a, a humbling experience. I would, uh, I'd like to hear the story mm. behind that one day if I could. You should uh, read a book. I should, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, the temple, and think about it, the temple would have been this beautiful. There was art pieces around the temple. It wouldn't have had any depictions of God, but it would have had other things as well, you know? And I just think, what would that art have looked like, mm. you know? Because we see, uh, you know, we see how in the tabernacle there was just the one golden lampstand, but Solomon said, hey, you know what? Let's get a whole bunch more. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he made it this elaborate, extravagant thing. And mm. I was, I'd love to have seen like the temple in its heyday. Yeah. Of like, it's what is the temple? Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What did this look like? Yeah. You know? Mm. Um, and you ought to look into the Temple Institute. They are getting all kinds of They're furniture. Ready They're yeah. ready to rock and roll. Um, fascinating stuff. But like I said, it's all just a small picture of, of, of heaven. Um, and as we've already kind of discussed, we don't know exactly how thick the veil was. I've seen some go from 18 inches to 37 inches, just an incredibly thick piece of cloth, of cloth, um, or whatever it was. Um, let's read, uh, just for, it's a good verse to read. It's Mark, uh, Mark 15. So we're going to be at uh, 37. All right. So it's one we've all heard, but should never get tired of hearing it. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And immediately, it's not like it was... You know, it, verse 38 begins, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mm. I, I mean, immediately. It wasn't like it was a, a, yeah. a waiting game or a process. It's once he dies, separation is there no longer no there. missing the correlation there. Yeah, no correlation to be made. And quite possibly, some of the, the priests would have been in the temple at that time. You know, well, thinking. Passover, so wouldn't they have been? Yeah, and thinking about you know some of them would have probably been responsible for what had been happening at Jesus and saying, "Oh, what just happened here?" Again, I would just love to know the story behind that. Um, last thing I'd like to read is in uh, Hebrews uh, chapter ten. So let me turn over there right quick. Hebrews ten. Uh, verse 19. All right. 
Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the, the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So, quite simply, we can approach the throne boldly because of his finished work on the cross, of what he did. In the same sense that the mercy seat, when blood was sprinkled on the east side, we see on the east side of Jerusalem sat the Mount of Olives, and that our our light giver, if you will, being Christ, was pressed, mm. crushed. His blood was spilt, and he's the light of the world. And what does he tell us to be? He tells us to be the light of the world. Um, I've had I've heard some people talk about how, and again, I'm, I'm not going to go too deeply on this one, but I've heard some preachers and, and such talk about how, uh, how the Holy Spirit is akin to this and how when he died, you know, when we are Christians, we have the Holy Spirit with us right. and how that helps us to be a light to the world. It's just fascinating stuff to get into. Um, but I just think about how amazing it is that the, the little connections that we see, Christ is the one that he came back to the dead, came back from the dead, uh, just like Aaron's rod that budded, you know, he blossomed out of death. Um, and we see that he went and his sacrifice was greater than anything that could be done in, uh, with man's hands. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Once for all. I mean, this would have been something, if he had not come when he did, they would still be required to be doing that right now. And that's a crazy thing to think about, that once a year they would have to be doing that. Anyway. Well, they're going to start doing it again. Exactly. Yeah, they're going to start doing it again. But I, you know, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I, I get, again, I'm just thinking, but it's like, they're going to still, in the millennium, right. they're still going to be doing sacrifices yes. and stuff, which is interesting to think about. Like, we'll, you know, yeah. we'll find out why. I, guess, right? I think yeah. it's interesting how for um, Passover, that they, they'll, they've changed the shank bone to an egg. Mm. Mm. Like, they've moved away from... from what yeah, strange. What they used to, used to have... That doesn't even require a sacrifice of an animal. Yeah. Just an, an egg. Sure it's an egg. <laughs> it's not a byproduct. It is. <laughs> well, I, mean, I mean, you know what I mean. Careful now. Yes. Well, yeah, that's all I've got for this evening. That's awesome. That's uh, good. good stuff. Yeah, appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, everybody. And uh, see you Sunday. <laughs>